On October 7th, Hamas, a Palestinian military group, which has been labeled a foreign terrorist organization by our government, Hamas launched a surprise attack on Israel and killed and abducted hundreds of people. Israel responded by launching a counterattack, which now we're a few months into the conflict, has left thousands dead and many thousands more wounded. Conflict's nothing new in this region. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict goes back decades. 1947 is the year that the United Nations created the Israeli and Palestinian nation-states. But the conflict goes back much, much farther than that. Not all, but many Palestinians are descendant from Ishmael, the half-brother of Isaac, the ancestor of the Hebrew people. And frankly, there have been family feuds from their descendants ever since. Now, what's been interesting in the way in which this conflict, in this conflict, is the way in which the sides have been drawn up. I think there have been attempts, I've, I've seen this on, on both sides, to try to justify the actions of one of the particular sides for each of them. Jonathan Hades, a social psychologist, wrote the book Coddling of the American Mind, and he uh, argues one of his three great untruths that we believe is that, quote, life is a battle between good people and evil people. As a result, we live in a way that if I can showcase why my enemy is evil, then I've got to be on the side of good. Now, many Americans, especially older evangelicals, view the the nation-state of Israel as God's chosen people. Therefore, it makes perfect sense to align ourselves with them. I mean, I, I was doing a little bit of digging and reading into this, and the Hamas attack truly was brutal. It was quite inhumane to the citizens that they murdered, that they assaulted, that they kidnapped. But just by acknowledging that, does not justify giving carte blanche to Israel to do whatever Israel wants to do in retaliation. Arguments could be made that Israel's counterattack has also caused much suffering of innocent Palestinian civilians, many of whom are not even directly connected with Hamas. But you may have experienced this as well, that there's support, strong support for Israel, But there's also a subset of Americans who support the Palestinian ethos. The last several decades of this conflict between Israel and Palestine have been very complex, to say the least. And there's there's lots of primer videos. You can go on YouTube and find some that can give you the history in a nutshell. But while Israel has been fighting for its right to exist as a nation, They have also, in this time period, claimed and settled land that was not theirs, at least not given to them by the United Nations, land that was originally marked off for the Palestinians. Even some of the land that remains with the Palestinians, like the Gaza Strip, has been tightly controlled by Israel, where staples like electricity and water are highly monitored. And so there are some minds of maybe peers, maybe co-workers, neighbors that, that you know that feel this way, that... In some minds, Israel has actually been the oppressor, and the Palestinians are the ones who have been oppressed. Which again, some try to argue excuses their invasion and attack on October 7th. When we try 
when, we, when we're tempted to try to force these parties involved into a dichotomy of either good or evil, we miss the bigger picture. This conflict is just a mess. It's a mess of human sin, of people and nation-states acting purely in self-interest, justifying whatever they do because of the offenses of their opponents. The truth is, there are no blameless parties in this conflict. There is culpability on all sides. Now, I bring this up this morning to highlight this second theme of Advent, that I think we have seated within us this craving for God's peace. We live in a world that is marked by strife and disorder, and people suffer as a result. Now, this Israeli-Palestinian conflict is nothing new. It's just the most recent version of events. If I was preaching the sermon a year ago, I could have just substituted the names of Ukraine and Russia instead. Or if we go back a couple of decades, I could instead have substituted Bosnia, Croatia, and Serbia. Or the Hutus and Tutsis from the Rwandan Civil War. Right, you see where I'm going with this. And, and that's really just in my lifetime. It isn't just nation that rises up against nation. In our own communities, we deal with conflict, perhaps on a lesser scale, but it's conflict nonetheless. A middle or high school student might have anxiety walking from class to class because of bullies or aggressors wandering the halls. Women cannot walk the streets of their neighborhood without being harassed, men whistling or catcalling, reinforcing the object objectification that they experience. Racial lines are drawn, and people of color have been disproportionately affected by violence in our culture. Right? The saying, driving while black, has become an expression to highlight the imbalance that people of color experience when they're more frequently pulled over by law enforcement officials due to racial bias than, rather than you know, apparent violations of the law. We're surrounded by it. This past week, I was reading through our Bible reading plan. On Monday, we read Psalm 120. And again, we see in the Psalms that in their words, they give voice to our cry. Psalm 120, 6-7 says this, Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Too long have we been surrounded by people organizations, a broader culture who seem bent on strife and violence as we crave God's peace. Now this conflict goes back to the time in the garden. Right? This unity is a result of the fall. That moment in the garden where in Eden when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Sin and brokenness entered our world. And theologians describe four relationships that were distorted as a result of this fall, that the first relationship was between God and people, was severed. Right? We rebelled against God. Adam and Eve rebelled, but they, they were our representatives, and they acted in ways that we continue to act today, and we broke that bond. The relationship with people was disordered. I mean, you see it right out of the gates with Adam and Eve. 
They start playing the blame game with each other. Soon after, their children, Cain, murders his brother Abel out of jealousy. The third relationship is that humans are at war with themselves. We struggle with identity, self-doubt. And lastly, our relationship with the world was marred. And instead of caring for the creation, we abuse it. Where there ought to have been peace, there's now strife and brokenness. We don't have to search high and low to see the consequences of this disorder. It's right in front of us. Like, we see it, right? Clear 4K resolution daily. That's all the examples I've given and so much more. In a violent and chaotic world, we long to have peace. We don't want to see neighbor rise up against neighbor. We want to be free from the daily battle with our own self-esteem, with that inner tumult within our minds that, that it would cease. We lament the increased hostility that the creation throws at us as we see these escalation of major storms and other natural disasters. Now, last week as I was preaching on hope, I I quoted from the prophet Isaiah. Just a reminder for those that weren't here last week, Isaiah, he's writing about a little over 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And last week, the promise was for a sign for a nation that was in the throes of despair. Right, a symbol of hope was to come. It's chapter 7, the virgin birth of this, this son will be given and he'll be named Emmanuel, quoted in the New Testament. A few chapters later, Isaiah records another prophecy, this one also pointing to the hope that is to come in that promised Messiah. And this comes from Isaiah chapter 9. But verse 2 sets the stage, and this is what it says. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Right? It's describing a people who are living in the gloom of hostility and they are given this much-needed respite. That hope is coming. And what follows in the next few verses following verse 2 describes there's military language, right? the language of battle. It talks about spoil being divided, that this burden, this, this oppression that was on their shoulders being cast off. The equipment of a soldier, boots, and the the cloak of a warrior being burned for fuel because it's not needed anymore. Then Isaiah says this, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This passage predicts the reign and rule of the Messiah. Jesus Christ. And and there's at this title, right, at the end of verse 6, it says that he is the prince of peace. Now, that word for peace is the Hebrew word shalom. We actually get our English word peace from the Romans. It's 
derived from the Latin word pax. Pax meant the cessation, the ceasing of hostilities between two parties. And as such, that's typically how we think about peace. It's how I kind of described it at the beginning, talking about Israel and Hamas. We think about peace as the elimination of conflict. But the Hebrew word for shalom that we find here is far deeper and far richer than this. Shalom carries with it the connotation of completion, of wholeness, soundness, health, safety, prosperity, permanence. Yes, that includes the absence of conflict, but I hope you can see that there's so much more to that definition as well. I like how Rabbi Khan of Houston, Texas articulated it. He said it this way, and I I quote, one can dictate peace. Shalom is a mutual agreement. Peace is a temporary pact. Shalom is a permanent agreement. One can make a peace treaty. Shalom is the condition of peace. Peace can be negative, right? The absence of commotion. Shalom is positive. The presence of serenity. Peace can be partial. Shalom is whole. Peace can be piecemeal. Shalom is complete. So Jesus Acknowledging this title, he is our prince of shalom. He comes to bring wholeness and completeness, not merely an end to hostilities. Remember, I said that there were those four relationships that had been uh, marred, that had been distorted as a result of the fall. I think the, the, I'm going to quote a number of passages that I think we'll start to see how Jesus started started the process of repairing those. Not just stopping hostilities, but actually repairing those relationships. First is Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus Christ has justified us before God and so therefore has made peace between us and God. While we were In rebellion against God, the natural response to that rebellion should be our punishment, but Jesus took our punishment so that we would be reconciled to God, so that that relationship could be healed. Wholeness, completeness, soundness. Ephesians 2, 14 to 16, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So what Paul is doing here is Paul is using the example of two people groups who were hostile with one another. You had the Hebrew people in this culture and the Gentiles. And these people were separated by cultural, ethnic, religious differences. And what Paul is arguing is that Jesus Christ took their differences away and removed that barrier of hostility between them. Now, it it doesn't mean that these two groups are meant to be homogeneous, but that their status, their value is no longer based upon what they bring to the table, but what Christ has brought. That's what they're seeking their identity in. 
And this is the New Testament. I mean, this is like the, the primary issue that Paul and others are dealing with in these churches. What does it mean that these people groups that were at odds with one another have been reconciled, working on mending that relationship between humans that was tarnished at the fall? John 14, verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Right? Cultivating a relationship with Jesus helps to ease our anxieties. Knowing that he is for us, that we have an advocate. Right? Helping our bodies and minds not be at war with themselves any longer. He seeks to have our hearts whole and complete. Right? He gives us his peace, his shalom. Here's another one, John 16, 32 to 33. Jesus says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. And I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. He continues, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. Now, this one is interesting, because Jesus says that he provides peace but acknowledges continued hosti hostility and tribulation. And it showcases that what he has in mind here is something deeper. He says, yes, you might have people who hate you, who oppress you, who are against you, but their power is limited. Even in the midst of tribulation, Jesus encourages us to have peace because ultimately he is the one who's overcome the world. Right, this should give us hope. I mean, we see a posture similar in Luke's gospel. So in Luke's gospel, when Jesus is arrested in the garden, you know, you have soldiers that, that come to arrest Jesus, and Peter does what humans have been doing ever since the fall, right? Under the threat of attack, he grabs his sword and he lashes out, cuts off the ears of one of his attackers. You know, Jesus doesn't respond saying, all right, Peter, go get him. Jesus rebukes Peter says, put that sword away. Instead of following the path of violence, Jesus willingly gives himself up. We know what follows. There's public trial, there's his execution, his death. But what we see Jesus model is he models for us what it means to overcome evil with good and forge peace. Matthew 5, 9, and I want to riff on this one a little bit longer. This is one of the Beatitudes. The, the Beatitudes are the portion of the Sermon of the Mount where Jesus instructs his followers on which postures of life are befitting of the kingdom of God, right? Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. That's where the, the name Beatitudes comes from. It provides moments of comfort for those who are afflicted, letting them know that they're seen, encouraging traits like mercy and humility, letting them know you're going to receive a reward. And so here's one that's relevant for our consideration. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. So not only is Jesus an agent of peace like we saw there in the Garden of Luke, Garden of Gethsemane, that is, not Eden, but he encourages his followers also to be agents of peace. And he calls them blessed, that they'll be children of God. Now that word for peacemaker, it's a compound word in the Greek, which literally is translated as those who make 
peace, or those who do peace. Jesus is a peacemaker. He encourages his followers to be peacemakers. Now notice, it does not say peacekeepers. It might seem like a small difference between those two, peacemakers and peacekeepers, but they're worlds apart from one another. Right? A peacekeeper can keep the peace without having too much investment in a particular situation. Some of you may have grown up in homes where there was a sense of peace. But that was because conflict was never addressed. If you just sweep your feelings under the rug, if you avoid or ignore it, it's not peacemaking, that's peacekeeping. If you're the type of person who, you know, the second conflict begins to stew, you automatically abdicate, right? You fold and give in to your friend or your spouse. Right? That's not peacemaking, but peacekeeping. Right? Peacekeeping is doing whatever needs to be done to end that conflict as quickly as possible. Going back to our differentiation between the English word for peace and that Hebrew word for shalom, right? there are a lot of avenues for peace, but they're short-term temporary, uh, sometimes even unhealthy for us. We're called to be peacemakers, to seek that shalom, to invest our lives in a way that what follows is not just an end to conflict, but wholeness and completeness. Right, peacekeeping are the ceasefires that are being described on that global level right now regarding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Clearly essential, I know there was a ceasefire a, f a few days ago, make sure aid's getting to the people that needs it, you know, working on, it, you know, providing opportunities for hostages to be released. But as we saw, it was short-term. People lashed back out again. The conflict resumes. Now, honestly, I wish I could tell you what peacemaking looks like in this conflict, but I have to, I have to admit, that's over my, my pay grade. I don't know what that's going to be like. And, and, and frankly, in this situation and many others, that ultimate shalom probably is not going to happen until Jesus comes back. And so that's a period of waiting in, in, in Advent. We wait. That's what we do in Advent. We wait. Right? We look back with delight on the birth of Jesus Christ. You know, if you read through Luke's account of his birth, the shepherds are in the field and they see these powerful vision of angels. Sarah talked about it this morning as we were worshiping, this army of angels praising the Lord. What is it that they say? They say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Right? The announcement heralding the birth of Messiah was one of peace. And so as those, we who come after this long-awaited birth, we look back and with delight, but we continue to wait. We wait for the second coming so that true shalom can fill the earth. That conflict is going to be a thing of the past. Listen to the words of Isaiah, his prophetic utterance. And he describes what that time will be like. This is Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. It says, He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. It'll be really nice when a region like the Middle East that has seen so much conflict will have God as the arbitrator deciding their disputes and not man. And Isaiah continues. 
and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And I love this imagery. That the very tools that have been used for harm, swords and spears, are transformed into instruments of peace, instruments that are meant to bring flourishing to the world. And so as we wait, we wait for God to bring his peace to us. I I say it every now and then, that we live in the time between the times, the time where Christ has established his kingdom. It is here. It is among us. But it's not yet here in all of its fullness. And so we kind of, we're in this point where we're waiting, but we don't just sit on our hands waiting. God invites us to participate in the work that he's doing. And so I want to leave you with a passage from Romans. Paul's giving this encouragement to the saints who are waiting for the completion of all things. Remember, they lived in the midst of the Roman Empire, society that was intolerant of their theology, physically aggressive towards them, putting them to death. And this is what he says. So if it's true of them, it's got to be true of us. He leaves these words. Romans 12, 17 to 18. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. May that be our posture while we wait. As I said a moment ago, not just sitting on our hands, not just waiting passively, but actively waiting and trusting for God to bring that that, uh, reconciliation to come. But in the midst of it, we're called to live in a way that maintains peace that we can be, you know, responding to people out of kindness and peace and, and not aggression. So as we think about this, um, as we think about these themes of peace, um, I do have a couple of questions for us to, to, to think through. First is this. What's one area of your life right now where you crave the peace of God? Maybe there's a conflict with a family member or a friend Maybe there's like a kind of an emotional toll that you feel like at war with yourself. Do you want it to be done? You know, I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the, the weeds, you know, I don't know, creation, the weeds in your backyard that you're like, Lord, come back and take care of those weeds because I can't, I can't manage them. But where is it that you're craving that peace, that shalom? Yeah, not just absence of conflict, but wholeness and restoration. Second is this, Matthew 5, 9, also part of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus illustrates the way of peace, saying, turn the other cheek. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I say to you, turn the other cheek. What makes it so difficult to live this way? Because I'd say it's pretty hard to live that way. What is it that makes it hard to live that way? And last is this, how would you compare and contrast what peacekeeping and peacemaking look like? And I'll post them on Facebook, I'll post them on the web uh, if you want to look at them to just keep thinking about these themes of peace while we wait in them. So let me pray and then we'll, uh, we've got one more song we'll close with.
Lord, you are a God of peace, of shalom. And I'm just reminded how often that is the polar opposite to the way that I live. Whether it be uh, escalating uh, conflict, sometimes even in my own household, whether it be the way that I and I'm sure others consume, 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 and just throw out when we don't need it anymore, the sense of wastefulness. Lord, we see it in our nation. Republicans and Democrats square off against each other, oftentimes dehumanizing one another. We see it globally in conflicts around the world, like in Israel and Palestine. The truth is, God, I, I can't fix it. None of us can fix it. Instead, Lord, you have promised that you will come and set things right, that you will decide those disputes between the nations. And while we cannot end single-handedly the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, there are areas that, in our lives that we can. And so, God, I pray that if there are conflicts that are coming to mind, places where we are at war with others or at war with ourselves, that you would provide for us your Holy Spirit to seek that reconciliation not just a ceasefire, but true peace. Lord, we need your help. And so we continue to wait for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.